Sometimes I feel like I should just stand up and do a benediction. <laughs> it can only go downhill after. Okay. This morning we're looking at John chapter 4, starting at verse 27. And this is the story of the woman at the well. This is the last part of the story of the woman at the well. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would... um, You would certainly open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, but I also pray that you would um, you would encourage us um, to be concerned about other people and the destinies of other people. I pray that the gospel uh, would break free within many of us, that it would flow from us into the lives of others as a result of what we hear this morning. Pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Let me start this way. Um, You know, everyone, everyone in this room, I'm guessing, knows someone who has either had cancer or who has died of cancer, or, or know someone who has cancer right now, or maybe you have cancer right now. And let me ask you this question. Um, what would happen? What, what, what would you do personally if for some reason you personally discovered the cure to cancer? What would you do? If you, if, you, if, if, if you were a research scientist and you were studying and suddenly you discovered the cure for every single kind of cancer, what would you do? Would you tell people? I would. I, I would think you would, you would go everywhere you could and tell them. I found the cure to cancer. I found the cure to cancer. I found the cure. You would tell everybody. How could, how could you not? On one hand. On the other hand, what would you think of a person who discovered the cure to cancer 
and didn't tell anybody. They discovered it and they said, man, that is like really cool. I'm just going to study it some more. And I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to gather people together and we're going to study it together. And we're going to talk about within ourselves, but we're not going to tell anyone else, just the group that's in this room. We're going to talk about all the different ways that this cancer cures people and all the different things that, that it does. What would you think of those people? Would you think they were heartless? Would you think they're indifferent? Wouldn't you want them to like tell people about like the cure that they had found? What, what, what would you think? Now here's, at this point in the sermon, if I were the prophet Nathan, I would say something like, we are that man. We are the man. And what do I mean by that? You know, if you're here in this room, if you're a Christian, you believe a couple things, I assume. You believe that, number one, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That this thing called sin has infected everything. It, 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 it affects everything. It affects our relationships. It separates us from God. It separates us from each other. It separates us at some level from a right relationship to creation. We know that, right? That things are not the way they're supposed to be. But if you're a Christian, in theory, you also know the cure. Right? What is the cure for the way things are not supposed to be? Well, the cure for the way things are not supposed to be, at least according to Christianity, is this thing called the gospel. Right? That Jesus lived the life he should have lived, we should have lived, he died the death we should have died, and he rose from the dead, and in his rising from the dead, he was the first fruits and began to make all things new, including us and including all of creation. We know the disease, and we know the cure, and do we tell anybody about it? Most Christians don't, to be honest with you. Most churches don't. Most churches, the way they grow is just Christians going from one church to another to see who's got the better cure or, or who can explain the cure better to me. When in fact, what we're called to do is to take this cure to the world, to take this cure out and tell everybody. What we're going to look at this morning is the, the finale of the story of the woman at the well. And if you remember how this whole story started, is Jesus was in Judea, he had to go to Galilee, and he passed through Samaria on purpose. And Samaria was like no, no man's land for the Jew. And he stopped at a well in the middle of the day and met this woman who was there in the middle of the day, and she was there because no one wanted to talk to her, no one wanted to be around her. She was an outcast. Remember, we found out ultimately that she had five husbands and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And she said, how is it that you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then he was off to the races, right? He said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. And then that would, the, the water I would give you would become in you a well that is springing up to eternal life. And so that was the first week. Last week, we looked at the, they continued the dialogue, which ultimately culminated in her saying in verse 26 or 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming when he is, who is called Christ comes. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she sort of, she's done with the discussion, right? And she just says, you know, when Messiah gets here, then he can, he'll, he'll tell us all things. And remember, I always imagine Jesus leaning in with a glint in his eye, and he says, I who speak to you am he. What are you going to do now? I who speak to you am he. We're going to look at what she does as a result of that. We're going to look at the power of the gospel in her life and how it, it affects her life and how it naturally 
flows forward. In some sense, you know, Christians talk an awful lot about this thing called evangelism, right? I remember being at this church about 20 years ago, and we had an evangelism summit up in the, the student room, and people were supposed to come and give ideas about evangelism. And, and one of the older men stood up, and he basically said, this is all bull. And people were shocked. And he said, I've been in this church for 50 years, and we've tried all of these things before, and it never works. So I'm going to give you today, I'm going to tell you today what actually works to lead people to Jesus. It's not programs, it's not training, it's not rocket science. We're going to look at it. Three things this morning. Three things we're going to look at this morning are first the power of the gospel, we're going to see the work of the gospel, and finally the scope of the gospel. Okay, power of the gospel, work of the gospel, and the scope of the gospel. Let's look at the first few verses here as we consider the power of the gospel says just then right jesus has just said i who speak to you am he and just then his disciples came back they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking to her so the woman left the, her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see a man who told me all that i ever did can this be the christ they went out of the town and they were coming to him so the first thing, that the, what, what does the power of the gospel do? The first thing we see, at least in this passage, that the power of the gospel does is it reveals self-righteousness. Is it outs us, right? So I, imagine these disciples come back and they see Jesus talking to a woman and it says there that they marveled, that they were just shocked and astounded that Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, was talking to a woman. Now, we don't know if they knew she was a, a loose woman or that she was a Samaritan woman, but nonetheless, a ra- our rabbi is talking to a woman. Can you believe that? Rabbis aren't, don't typically talk to women. Now, how do we know that that's a self-righteous attitude? Get ready to laugh, because rabbis don't typically talk to fishermen or tax collectors either. What they were. So a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors who have been called to follow Jesus come and they say, oh, can you believe he's talking to a woman? And if you think about it, who are they to think they are any better than her? If the standard is who rabbis talk to and who rabbis don't talk to. You see, at the end of the day, what the gospel reveals is our self-righteousness, among other things. It reveals um, moralism, sexism, racism. All of those things have their basis in self-righteousness. We think that we are somehow more moral than other people, or that we're better than other people because we are more moral, or we're better than them because of the color of our skin, or we're better than them because of our gender, or we're better than them for one thing or the other. And even worse than that, we think that God thinks we're better than them, right? It's one thing for me to just think I'm better than you, but to think that God thinks I'm better than you, that's a whole different level altogether. And that's what the gospel reveals our self-righteousness and what it says is that none of you are worthy. Is he worthy? Yes. Are we worthy? Absolutely not. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. Most people that I know, they would say, if you ask them, like, what will it take to get to heaven? And most people will give some kind of answer and say, well, I'm trying to be a good person, as long as I'm a good person. And, and the, the easy question to that is, relative to who? Relative to Hitler? Okay. How about relative to Jesus? None of us are worthy. The gospel reveals our self-righteousness. In other words, that our goodness is just as damning as our badness is. 
In fact, C.S. Lewis would say that goodness is much more dangerous than badness because bad people know they're bad. They, they, they don't make any qualms about it. Good people don't know they're bad. And so good people are more in more danger than, than bad people, of course, of self-righteousness. And what's interesting is that ironically, that while the disciples struggle with a false sense of goodness, this woman has been freed up to admit her badness. The disciples, did you notice, they're like, they don't know what to do. They don't address, they don't, they don't say to her, what do you seek? Because they don't want to get in trouble with Jesus. They don't say to him, why are you talking to her? Because they don't want to get in trouble. The woman, she doesn't care about any of it. Why? Because she has been freed by the power of the gospel. That the disciples who are following Jesus, they're sort of stuck. They don't know whether to say something or not say something. This woman, doesn't matter. Five husbands, one she's living with, not married. I just met the Messiah, and he told me everything. Like, I think we're supposed to believe that when Jesus said, I who speak to you am he, that she believed it. And believing it, it changed her. Because the gospel is powerful enough to change anybody, any person you believe that? I mean, we look at people, and we, if you ever look at someone and think, ooh, I don't know if the gospel could change that person. If you think that, then you probably, at the end of the day, don't really believe that the gospel can change you. If the gospel can't change you, it can't change anybody. But here we see this woman who has been freed up by the power of the gospel. And when you're freed up by the power of the gospel, when you're freed up to actually admit your sins... I mean, she, imagine going around saying, I just met a man who told me everything about me. And I'm sure that John is, is, is distilling things to, because, to make the story shorter. Everyone knew what this woman was like. Everyone knew what she had done. At least five guys knew what she was like. And she's saying, I met the guy who knows it all. And what has happened here? It, the gospel, when the gospel changes us, it flows through us easily. It, we can't help... But, but, but overflow. In, in other words, notice what she did. It says in verse 28, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So on one hand, that's probably symbolic from, from John, right? That, that she came there to get well water to drink physically. And what she actually got was living water from Jesus. But what we also see here is remember what Jesus told her? He said, if you drink the water that I give you, it'll well up in you and become a spring of eternal life. That it won't be able to be contained. And that's what's happening to her. That we're seeing in real time this woman become a well, a spring of living water that is ushering out and feeding other people eternal life. That the gospel, if the gospel has truly transformed us, it can't be contained. It just can't be. And, or, or to the extent that the gospel has transformed you, it won't be contained. She has been transformed. She has been, something has affected her so deeply that she goes into town and tells other people. Now, on one hand, that wouldn't seem that strange. I mean, it might seem strange to a lot of us. But think about the people that she's going back to. These are the people that ostracized her. These are the people that made her go to the well by herself because they didn't want to be seen with her. 
Remember, she went to the well at noon, the time no one else would go, because most people went to the well in the morning or they went to the well in the evening, and none, no one wanted to be seen with her. And so this woman has been so transformed, she goes back to the very people who ostracized her and cast her out, and she tells them, come and see. Come and see the man who told me everything about me. Can this be the Christ? In other words, she witnesses to this village. One of John's favorite words, the Apostle John who wrote this book, is the word witness. Right? That John the Baptist came as a witness. Andrew witnessed to Peter. Philip witnessed to Nathaniel. They witnessed, witnessed. This woman witnessed to this whole village. And what did she do? Here's all the evangelism training that you ever need. I mean, I, I don't know about other traditions, Baptists, Assemblies of God, whatever, but I know Presbyterians spend a lot of time, when you start talking about evangelism, say, well, we need to put together a class. And before we put together a class, we need to put together a committee. And once we get the committee, they can discuss evangelism classes. And then we'll put the class together, and then we'll get some people in the class, and then we'll maybe do some training. Five years later, <laughs> nothing. Here's all you need to know right here. Step one, tell your story. That's it. Has the gospel transformed you? Has the gospel changed you? Has the gospel done anything at all in your life? Just tell people that. And you don't have to be obnoxious about it. Just if you're friends with people, it comes up. I mean, I go to to a ranger breakfast once a month. And every time I meet new people, and every time they are shocked. Because they say, oh, so what do you do? You know, you go around the table, what do you do? Oh, I do security. Oh, I'm a contractor. Oh, I do this. Preacher. Someone cusses at that point, inevitably. And, and they say, how did you become a preacher? Well, I got to tell them how I became a Christian. Tell your story. Do you have a story? If you're a Christian, you have a story. How did Jesus save you? Where were you? Some of us have drastic, dramatic stories. Some of us have have stories that aren't so dramatic. But you know what? All of them are important because there are lots of different kinds of people in the world. The second thing is she invites people. The other thing you see in, in the Gospel of John, the way that people like get people to come to Jesus is they simply say, come and see. That's it. Every person who becomes a Christian, generally speaking, at least in the in the United States, If they didn't grow up in a Christian home, they've become a Christian because someone with a heartfelt testimony said, come and see. Just come and see, come and see. Like, I don't believe, I don't know if I believe all that stuff you believe. Yeah, come and see. And they get invited to a Bible study or church and they encounter Jesus themselves and they become a Christian. That's it. Because the third thing, and those of you in sales will get this, is she asks for the business. Right? She says, come and see. This man told me everything about me. Could this be the Christ? She doesn't push him. She doesn't say, I want a decision from you guys all today. Are you ready to put the Lord on the throne of your life right today? She doesn't. She says, come and see. Could this be the Christ? Is he the guy? Now, they've got her changed life as a pretty powerful testimony to the fact that he could be the Christ, but they need to decide for themselves, could this be the Christ? That's it. That's all she does. And what is the result? Verse 30, it says, they went out to the town, and they, they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. That's it. I mean, think about the, how powerful her testimony was. This woman who had been ostracized comes back 
to tell them, I think I found the Messiah. He saved me. He changed me. But I'm like, I went to get dead water, and now I'm living water. I can't explain it, but you need to see him. Now, if you're them, what do you do? Do you just say, oh, she's crazy. Only a crazy person would come back to the people who ostracized them and say they found the Messiah who can save anyone from their sins. I think they were curious at very least. At very least, he was a prophet. At best, he might actually be Messiah. The only way they can know is they got to go and see for themselves. And that's exactly what they do. And, you know, I became a Christian personally um, because two friends... You've all probably heard the story if you've been in our church for any amount of time. Right? I grew up not going to church really hardly at all. And then two girls in German, I had two friends in German class for four years in a row. It was three people, me and these two girls. They both happened to be Christians. And in our senior year of high school, they said, come and see. Will you come to this camp with us? Sure, why not? We're friends. First night of camp, the speaker talked about sin and hell, and he said, you're responsible for all the sins you've ever done. Have a nice night, kids. <laughs> I'd done a lot of stuff by then, by the way. And I remember I walked out, and another friend said, what do you think? Could this be the Christ? Could you need the Christ? And I remember he said, what do you think? And I just lost it. I said, I, forgive my language. I said, I think I'm screwed, man. I got Nothing. If that's true, and he told me about Jesus, and it, that's it. That's all that it took. How about you? How did you become a Christian? Have you ever written that out? You should be prepared. Write out a two-minute testimony at some point and have that with you. Um, most people become Christians because someone invites them to church, Bible study, something. I was invited. I became a Christian. Let's continue on in the text and talk about the work of the gospel. Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. <laughs> so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> right? my, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So for the first thing you see in, in sort of this part of this story is the priority of Jesus. And the, the disciples have come back. Remember, the disciples left to get food. They, they left to get them food. That's the, they imagine in those days, you didn't just get in the car and drive to the corner and get some food. The disciples would probably walk several miles. It was noon. They went a long way. They got some food. They brought it back to the rabbi. Rabbi, eat. And he says that, you know, I have food that you do not know about. And I could see Peter, like, cussing. Come on, man. Like, which went got you food? You, you already had food? Like, they're sort of there for comic relief almost. They don't have a clue of what's going on. But what Jesus says is, I have food that you don't know about. And what is that food? He says, my food, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's to do God's will and to accomplish his work. You see, the priority of Jesus is evangelism. The priority of Jesus. Remember Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus tells him, what does the Son of Man come to do? The Son of Man came to seek good Christians and make sure they have lots of Bible studies to go to and make sure their churches are growing and they all have a place to plug into ministry. That's why I came. He didn't say that. He said the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. 
That was the mission that he was seeking to accomplish. And it was not just that, but it was not only to seek and save the lost, but the saving part. He accomplished that on the cross. Remember one of the last things Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished. That he came to seek and save the lost. He came to accomplish the work for which God sent him. And he did accomplish the work on the cross. At the cross of Jesus, all of our sins were taken away. They were, we, you, the, the record that was held against us was nailed to the cross. The debt against you, all of your sins nailed there. And they are gone and they are done. And the priority of Jesus is making sure people know that and to draw his sheep in. And so which leads to the reality of the harvest. When we share the gospel with people, surprise, surprise, people actually come in. Look at verse 35. He says, do not say there are yet four months. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. That basically, what does Jesus mean here when he's talking about the harvest? And he says, there are four months that are coming. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. I think what's probably happening is these people are coming from the town. And the well is probably on more elevated ground. The people are coming from the town. And Jesus says, look. You're saying, wait, yeah, four months till the harvest comes. He said, the real harvest is coming right now. And people in those days at noon, they probably would have been wearing white. They're coming right now. And as they're coming, Jesus begins to talk about this partnership of the harvest. He says, one sows and one reaps. What does he mean by that when he says, when one sows and and another reaps? He, He could be talking about any number of things. He could be talking about the Old Testament that the Old Testament, right, these are Samaritans, they believe the first five books of the Bible, and so the, the, that's been sown among them for centuries, m- millennia maybe. He could be talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a ministry here, where John the Baptist preached, and they heard John preached, and, and John was sowing seed, and now they, someone else is going to reap it. I think who he's talking about is the woman, Remember, eventually she would be, we learned her name from the Catholic Church that it was uh, Fonita. That I, I think he's talking about her. She's been out there sowing. And now you boys get to reap. You just got to reel them in. They're coming. And the, that you will now be the ones who reap. You see, someone, you're, you're always, if you're a Christian at least, you're always sowing or you're always reaping. And just because you're sowing doesn't mean that that seed is gone to waste. In fact, it, in my experience, like when I, when I was in the army, I did a lot of sewing. I told a lot of people about Jesus. I gave, told my story, and, and I told people about Jesus, and I, got out, and, and I didn't see anyone become Christians. Did I waste my time? I don't think so. Because when I was in college, one of my ranger buddies visited me, and he said, wow, you wouldn't believe what happened after you left. All these people started becoming Christians. He said, I didn't know what to do. He was Jewish, by the way. He said, I didn't even know what to do with all these guys. I sowed, someone else reaped. Right? Uh, On the other hand, right, there are times when I I was a church planner, I was a reaper. 
And what do I mean by that? Well, I was a church planner in Seattle back in the 90s. And as a church planner in Seattle back in the 90s, that was a time when people, if they got tired of their sort of religious upbringing in the South, they didn't want to go, you know, they're tired of what their parents were shoving down their throat in Alabama or Georgia. They would move to Seattle. They're going to get away from all this Christianity stuff. And I was waiting for them. And they would hear the gospel from a different perspective than what they had heard it. And they would become Christians. But you know what? That wasn't because I was so brilliant. It's because for their whole lives, the, the, the it, seed had been sown. God just appointed me to be the reaper in that situation. Someone's always sowing. Someone's always reaping. And I give you some encouragement if your parents here. Um, don't stop sowing. Right? I know parents sometimes get discouraged because they think, man, I'm just sowing. I'm sowing. I'm sowing. And I don't see, I don't see fruit. I don't see my child you know, really following Jesus. You know what? You might not be the one who is appointed to reap. Someone else might. But if you're a parent, continue to sow, counting on the fact that Jesus has appointed someone to reap in, in the situation of your kids. And so, with that said, let's look finally at the scope of the gospel. What is the scope of the gospel? Notice what happens. Um, verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, who would have thought... Um, that this woman would have had such an effect on this whole town. Like if you were a disciple or if you were me and you thought, hmm, I'm going to look at a bunch of people and think, which one of these people is going to be the most effective for the gospel here? I, I might pick because I think, oh, I know this person has this gift or that person's a good communicator. We don't know anything other than the fact that she went and told people and it says many people came because of her testimony, period. They didn't come because they, they were persuaded of, the, of all the theological intricacies of what she believed. She went and gave her testimony, and the testimony was simple. He told me all that I ever did. Five or six words. And because of that, they came. And once they got there, then they believed because they heard in Jesus. In other words, they came because of her testimony, and they ultimately were converted and believed because they encountered Jesus. And they say that. That doesn't diminish her testimony. In fact, it, it, it affirms it. That they ask him to stay, and basically he does, which is important because why is it important that he stayed there for two days? One, it's interesting that Samaritans invited a Jewish rabbi to stay and teach them for two days, and it's also more interesting that a Jewish rabbi stayed with Samaritans for two days. And I think that again shows us the priority of Jesus is reaping these souls. The priority of Jesus is to seek and save the lost, and that's what he did here, all because of this woman's testimony. One of the hardest things in the world to argue with, in fact, something that's nearly impossible to argue with, is someone's testimony, a changed life. Remember John chapter 9? Another one of my favorite stories we'll look at eventually. John chapter 9, when the, the Jesus heals a man who has been born blind. Everyone knew he was born blind. And the Pharisees go to his parents and they're like, I don't know, ask him. And the, the Pharisees go to him and they say, was this man a sinner who healed you? And the man says, hey, you know, I don't, I don't know what he was. But what I do know is I was blind, but now I see. So they pick up stones, right? Because you can't, you can't argue with that. 
You couldn't argue with Phonita either. Instead of arguing with her, they, they trusted her, they encountered Jesus, and it changed their lives. And they concluded that he is the Savior of the world. It says, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In other words, he's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's not just the Samaritan Messiah, but he is the world's Messiah. I don't think, I don't know if that's what that guy intended to say. I think, but John wants us to believe that, that Jesus, for God so loved the world, that this is a Messiah who is for anybody and everybody. And the disciples here, they were being trained because eventually it would be their job to do this. It would be their job to stay and teach people. It would be their job for them to stay and do the reaping. Now, why is this so important? Right? I mean, people feel, whenever you talk about this, I know I've, been in, I've sat where you sit, and people feel a little bit mm, guilty, you know, mm, I should be doing more. Why is it important? It's important because it really, if we really believe that the gospel is true and that there are eternal consequences for whether we believe or don't believe, then it actually it matters. You know, one, there's, a, there's a story I think about all the time. It's from when I was in the army. When I, when I was in the army, I, I was in a ranger battalion, and one of the things, if, you, if someone wasn't really fitting, you could get rid of them, right? <laughs> I mean, it's an elite unit, you, so you, and I was often tasked with being the guy who got rid of them. And one of the guys we were trying to get rid of came to me one afternoon, he knocked on my door, and he said, Sergeant Allen, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. His name was Brady. I'm not going to tell you his last name. His name was Brady. I said, sure, Brady, what do you, what do you want? And he said, this is going to sound crazy, but he said, I noticed that you cuss less than the other NCOs. Notice he didn't say, I noticed you don't cuss at all. <laughs> but it was significantly less that it made a, a, an impression on this kid. And I told him, you know what? When I was about your age, I became a Christian and it changed everything. Da, 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 da. Now get out of my office. Right? I mean, I, I sowed, if you will. I told him. And he said, well, can I find out more about this? And I said, you know, I think there's a Bible study over there. The chaplain does this. And he went and he attended the Bible study. And he became a Christian in about two weeks after that. And then about two weeks after that, he was killed. Hmm, right? I think about that all the time. I was faithful. I sowed. But the fact is, it actually mattered. He actually went to a Bible study. He actually encountered Jesus. And then he actually died within that much time. And that is happening all around us does it matter that we tell people our story does it matter that we tell them come and see right people all the time look at pastors they look at elders and they say man we need to grow the church we need to do that you know what the only way you can grow churches is if the members go out into the community and say come and see come and see that's your challenge this week when to invite someone to something You've heard me say that before. Invite them to your house. Invite them to Starbucks. Invite them to church. Invite them to Easter. And just tell them your story. Don't point a finger at them. Point the finger at yourself. And point the finger at Jesus. I'm the sinner. And that's the guy who saved me. Could it be the Christ? Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that we would, um, we would be convicted. That, that we would be convicted of your grace. We would be convicted of the truths of the gospel. We'd be convicted that our decisions here and now have eternal consequences and that we can be participants of both sowing and reaping this thing called the gospel. That we can share in your joy. 
In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.